Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Environmental Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jason Newton, postdoctoral fellow in the history of capitalism at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte, and a host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Daniel McFarlane. Dan is an assistant professor of freshwater policy in environmental and sustainability studies at Western Michigan University. He's an environmental historian who specializes in water history and diplomacy on the United States-Canada uh, border. He's published um, several edited volumes and articles. In 2014, he published Negotiating a River, Canada, the U.S., and the Creation of the St. Lawrence Seaway. But today, we're here to talk about Daniel's uh, wonderful new book, um, Fixing Niagara Falls, Environment, Energy, and Engineering at the World's Most Famous Waterfall, published by UBC Press in 2020. So, uh, Dan, I was wondering if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself and your background and how you got interested in studying water. All right, well, thanks very much for the nice introduction and for having me here, Jason. Um, how I got into this book specifically was an out, outgrowth of that St. Lawrence Seaway book you mentioned. So, I mean, my background had been uh, history and political science for undergrad and master's and a PhD for, for, for history. And that was what my dissertation was about, was the St. Lawrence Seaway. Early on in that dissertation, it became apparent that Niagara Falls negotiations were really wrapped up in the Seaway stuff. So it didn't take too long to realize that was sort of the postdoc project, kind of separate that out, say a little bit about it and the dissertation and then the book, but that became its, uh, 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 the next book after that. So it was a pretty natural outflow, forgive the bad water pun, which I'll use many of probably, um, you know, of, of that was just a continuation on of um, part of the story of the St. Lawrence Seaway um, in, in a way, but my interest had been for a long time. I, w- I was more of a Canadian-American relations historian first as an undergrad and international history, um, but started marrying that with environmental history uh, in grad school, and that's sort of become what I'm most interested in and everything I've done um, since then, I think, has been at that nexus of environmental history mixed with cross-border U.S.-Canada history. So is there any specific reason why your work centers around water and, and water policy, or is it just an interesting kind of diplomatic issue, you think? Yeah, I mean, part of it is, it's, I thought it's one of the most important things in Canadian-American relations, or natural resources in general, but one of the most ignored. So even, I mean, if you go back, some of the earliest, you know, international environmental agreements globally anywhere were fish agreements between Canada and the United States, maybe some of those on the ocean, but some in freshwater as well. Um, So, I mean, I had always been interested in the Great Lakes landscape anyway, so I also had that that personal interest in exploring uh, water. But it just became very clear to me that water was not only a linchpin, I think, of the relationship, but also one of the most explored. So, I honestly, I mean, I've joked before that I will probably never leave, need to leave the Great Lakes Basin for subjects. Indeed, the, the, the future projects I've got going on are still staying you know, in, in the Great Lakes Basin. Um, so, I mean, that, we'll get to those uh, uh, future projects towards the end of the interview. Um, but, you know, uh, Fixing Niagara Falls is a great book because um, it's full of these really interesting facts that you know history nerds like us can bring up at parties like 
you know, for example, did you know that Niagara Falls is basically on a faucet and the flow can be restricted by more than half during non-tourist hours and then everybody slowly moves away from you at the party. Um, but, you know, there's, there's just these, these remarkable things that for me as an environmental historian, I, I just think are, you know, um, uh, so cool. You know, the debates over the proper color of the water. Um, so, you know, before we, we get into that, those debates and, and kind of the main argument of the book, um, you know, the book is full of wonderful pictures and maps that don't really work well on audio. So maybe you could just describe to the audience, uh, someone who's never been to Niagara Falls, you know, what they would see when they went there today. Right. Uh, yeah, it's a great question to try to paint, uh, I guess, an audio word picture of it. So, I mean, picture, you know, this is Niagara River is one of the second biggest river in Ontario and New York State by volume, one of the biggest in, on the continent. So picture, you know, a really big river, emerald green waters that just plunge over this gigantic chasm that basically, and we'll get into, you know, that they've shrunk it and all those things, but even Having said that, it still sort of takes up your whole view. So if you're at the Horseshoe Falls, you're looking at this gigantic crescent of water, which sort of over, it overpowers your senses in lots of ways too. There's sort of the dull roars part of the experience and the aesthetic, I think. You're getting, depending which way the wind's blowing, the spray and mist, you're gonna get wet, sometimes really wet, which is something they debated as well. And it does depend what side you're standing on, because Niagara Falls, of course, for you know, many people have been there probably, but for, for those who haven't, you've got basically two big waterfalls with that Horseshoe Falls being by far the biggest one, separated by an island called Goat Island and then the smaller American Falls on the one side. So the Horseshoe Falls is, is the big sort of overpowering one that people, I think, go to see. But you also see, if you're looking carefully, of course, you see lots of people, but you'll see lots of infrastructure there as well. So, I mean, towers and all other types of things all around, um, uh, factories, uh, all, all that sort of stuff. So it depends how you look to and, and where you look. Great. So, um, you know, a, a tougher question perhaps is what, and, and this gets towards, you know, the argument of the book, what might the falls have looked like 200 years ago or even further back? How has it changed, that landscape changed? Right. Well, in certain ways, the waterfall has been intended, they've changed it, but to keep it looking the same. So in some key respects, I think the waterfall would still look the same. I'm talking the specific waterfall itself, you know, this huge amount of water, a steady, something that defines it is this, it's a steady curtain. There aren't breaks. It's just, you know, Niagara Falls is often thought of as the greatest waterfall, even though it's not the tallest or the widest or the biggest, but it's arguably the best combination of, of all three of those things. Other tall waterfalls are pretty thin. Other wide waterfalls are broken up by lots of rock and just have lots of little waterfalls going on. So in some ways, that waterfall part would uh, still look similar, but I think, oh, if you could compare, I think you'd see it's a, it's a much fuller, a much, uh, much higher volume waterfall 200 years ago. It would, it would also look different. It would look a lot more like you're in the midst of wilderness when you're looking at it 200 years ago you'd probably have to climb through trees and to a certain extent and um to see it if you want to get down to the base of it there's no elevator <laughs> and things like that you're you're taking you know uh, trees that have notches um put into them with axes so you have to climb down there and you can actually walk behind the waterfall on the rock on your own so it'd be a much less sanitized you know there wouldn't have been much in terms of buildings all those sorts of things so especially right, what's right at the margins of the waterfall or my, might have been what looked really, really different compared to today. Great, yeah. And, and so, you know, you got a little bit at, at the, the fall's significance um, as a, a kind of attraction there, but could you maybe describe, you know, uh, uh, the, the falls as, as a tourist landscape, you know, from the early history of, uh, European America going forward to now. Right, so, so looking at it from, of course, had all types of significance for the different indigenous nations that used it. And, um, but speaking of Euro, Euro Americans, it, it sort of evolved into this, the symbol of the new continent of North America. It was seen as, I mean, part of the reason it has the reputation as, you know, maybe the, the greatest waterfall is 
because Europeans hadn't, didn't know about some of the other world's waterfalls until later in the 19th century. So it was widely believed that this was the biggest waterfall. And because the New World was seen as you know, nature untamed and all these resources that were there for the taking, it became um, you know, certainly a, a symbol of America, both the country and the continent in a lot of ways. But at, still at that point, you know, it's really just a few explorers who are able to access it um, or see it. Once the Erie Canal opens, makes it a little more feasible, it becomes sort of more of a high-class thing, you know, the, the, the northern tour, especially for Europeans. Now it starts to become a place to, to see and be seen and a place to go. And then so it starts to take on this upper-class um, symbolism as a place for, for tourists. Yeah. Great. So um, you argue that the waterfall, uh, quote, became infrastructure, end quote, and, and later on that it was designed. Um, and, and so in that way, you say it's an envirotechnical system. And I believe um, you're borrowing language from Sarah Pritchard. Um, so can you describe, you know, what that term envirotechnical means and and how this waterfall became an envirotechnical system. Right. So, yeah, you're absolutely correct. I'm borrowing from Sarah Pritchard and uh, many other folks who've um, put forward these uh, envirotechnical ideas. So that's, you know, that approaches theories and techniques um, at the intersection of environmental history and the history of technology can be very fruitful and point out a lot, a lot of uh, unique things to us. So I, one of the elements I find most exciting is that infrastructural approach. And I mean, we can see other things going back like second nature and organic machine that go back even further than before envirotechnical um, became a word that we use. So, I mean, that's been one of the, you know, an exciting theme, I think for me, always for environmental history is where is that intersection of when does something stop, stop becoming a nature? When does it start becoming a technology? And then there's a spectrum in between where it's a mix. So partially what I'm arguing is, and this is one of the great ironies of Niagara Falls because we think it's the natural sublime, the epitome of, uh, of nature is that it's very artificial in many ways. It is technology. It has been transformed into a technology where even the water that's falling, the rock, the weeds, the seemingly organic parts of it are actually conceived of as part of infrastructure. And then... I probably have to back up a bit to explain how that works, but the, that's because so much of that water is diverted and the waterfall shrunk in order to generate hydroelectricity. So in a really extreme way, you could argue the waterfall becomes sort of the spillway <laughs> of, uh, of a hydroelectric system. There's reservoirs built further downstream. Most of the water of the waterfall right, gets diverted um, through tunnels around the waterfall. Um, and so, I mean, to, to back up a bit where that comes from is, you know, going, going back to the 19th century, you have people start using uh, Niagara Falls for hydraulic power, so that's just, you know, non-electrical. But that's limited by, you know, some of the limit, technological limitations of the time. You can't use the full drop of water that's too powerful. That will wreck hydraulic machines. So those develop and get used a little more, but then you have... Um, electricity developed and then Niagara Falls is one of the place where large scale hydroelectricity is is sort of proven feasible. It's often exaggerated said this is where hydroelectricity is invented. That's not the case. There's many other places where hydro, hydroelectricity is developed first and even transmitted. But those are all on a small scale. This is where it's sort of proven that it can be done on a really large, large scale. And so by this time it's start of the 20th century both sides, of course, it's, it's the border, so the U.S. and Canada both start putting power stations on both sides uh, of the river, and they keep adding you know, more turbines, which requires more water. The more water you divert, the less water there is going over the actual waterfall, because the way it technically works is the water it goes around and then is dropped into the, the, the Niagara Gorge um, in the lower Niagara River after the waterfall. So you're losing water that's hurting the scenic and aesthetic appeal. Niagara Falls had already had a long history of people arguing to preserve or protect it, going back you know, to the creation of the first Niagara Reserve um, in New York State, which later inherits the mantle of the first 
or the earliest state park, just because what had been the earliest becomes a, <laughs> a federal park. Um, so there's this long history of preserving it. Though as I get into the book, there's often some more nefarious motivations, shall we say. It was actually preserving the waterfall was actually about, in some ways, creating monopoly for uh, water diversions for hydroelectricity under the guise of protecting it for the sake of people. Uh, industri industrialists would also started to argue that, well, if you've got less water going over the waterfall, and the other problem too that I don't think I've touched on is that Niagara Falls erodes naturally because of the type of rock that's under it and all the water that's going over. So it's moving back several feet per year. Um, so industrialists who want to divert the water start arguing, well, the way to protect it then would be if water causes erosion, let's remove water. Well, we'll take that water for you. We'll do our, you know, civic duty and divert that water um, so it won't hurt the waterfall. And, well, you know, while we do that, we'll just happen to spend some turbines and make some aluminum and some petrochemicals and electrochemicals and, and all those sorts of things. So you've got this situation where that's all increasing in the first half of the 20th century. The waterfall keeps looking worse. That's not good for tourism, as you can imagine. Um, you start to see the waterfall shrinking in. It's kind of shaped like a V um, at the lip of the waterfall. So if you've got less water, the flanks of it become bare and the waterfall essentially shrinks. Um, Canada, the U.S. go through a number of attempts, and this is where it connects to the COA, of diplomatic attempts to get a treaty or an accord that would allow them to sort of divvy up Niagara Falls water and power like a pie in some ways, as well as in a, put some limitations um, on how much water they can divert. So it's still going to have um, beauty and not just power. So that's sort of the perennial tension here is that beauty versus power tension. So that leads up to, and I mean, I can say more about the specifics of it if desired later on. But finally, in 1950, you do get a treaty um, that manages to get through the US Senate. Um, its predecessors hadn't been able to do so. And this is the Niagara Diversion Treaty. So this is the big hinge point in the history of beauty versus power at Niagara Falls. That, so that allows both countries to, the average flow of the Niagara River is somewhere around 200,000 cubic feet per second. This allows them to take half of that, roughly half of that during the daytime when tourists would actually be there. And then during the nighttime to step it up even more and take three quarters of the water. And then from the fall to the spring, they can be taking that three quarters as well. So if you go to Niagara Falls anytime in the fall or winter, you're seeing one quarter of the water that would otherwise go over the waterfall is going around the, the, these turbines. So this all lead up to, this is how it connects more to envirotechnical issues as well as, so if you're taking one, three quarters of the river's water, you can imagine the waterfall isn't going to look very good. So what they do also in the 1950s is essentially shut off Niagara Falls in stages, recarve it out, reshape it, they build dams and diversion works. Um, so instead of a case where you have maybe 10 feet of water, you know, the depth of 10 feet of water at the middle of the waterfall and nothing at the edges, it's done in a way to spread that out. So you have two or three feet along the whole lip of a waterfall. So it's intended to create, and this is the engineer's actually phrase, is, is an impression of volume so that it looks like just as full of a waterfall even if it's doing so with a lot less water and so that's where you get into a lot of the um they're actually calculating you know they use models and i spent a lot of time in the book talking about this is a pretty novel use worldwide of, of, of hydraulic models to do the planning for this to see how it would all work so that certainly um invokes an envirotech approaches the other interesting really interesting thing to me that connects back to you know, things like their organic machine is that they're actually factoring in how much weed is going to grow every year, how, many, how much aquatic weeds, that's going to displace a certain volume of water. Uh, they're going to change the rock um, to be part of essentially the spillway. So they're taking these and then they have to account for ice and how ice forms. So there's all these seemingly organic things that, and some of the dams are actually built in a way that's going to attempt to control how ice forms in the winter, what type of ice. So this is all an attempt to turn the ice, the weeds, the rock, the H2O, all into part of a, a working machine to generate electricity, but still fools people into thinking that you've got this natural sublime. And I mean, people don't come to Niagara Falls for five days or a week anymore like they used to. Most people come for a day or maybe a night or just a day trip. But at the same time, far more people come total 
we're talking 25, 30 million people a year still come to Niagara Falls. So, um, so you could argue they've, they've fooled people maybe in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. And again, this is why the book is, is so wonderful because, you know, you might, again, at a, at a hypothetical party, ask someone, you know, oh, you've been to Niagara Falls. Why did you go? Their answer might be to see this natural uh, uh, wonder, right? And then you could say, well, aha, in fact, it, it, it is not natural. And, and it's, it's, you know, almost as much infrastructure as it is natural. And so, you know, that is, is an important part of the book is this tension between utility and beauty, if we want to consider those things separate categories for the sake of this um, conversation. And, and of course, by utility, we mean, as you mentioned, electricity, power generation. And, you know, uh, uh, Professor Graham Wynn, who, who does the foreword for the book, um, does a good job, I think, talking about the impact of electrification, and you get into that as well. Um, so can you, and this really, you know, I think is important for understanding different stages of American industrialization and capitalism, uh, sorry, American and Canadian industrialization and capitalism. So could you uh, speak to, you know, the importance of, of drawing on hydropower for electricity? Right. Yeah. And I mean, that, that's really what all of this, its animating goal about is getting you know, living better through electricity from uh, Niagara Falls. And I mean, as you say, it's very much, this is industrial capitalism and government working in the service of industrial capitalism in many ways is what we have going on here. I mean, I argue that Niagara Falls is unique in some sense in that they actually re tried to retain the natural aspect, whereas, you know, most other big hydro projects of this era, the St. Lawrence, the Columbia, all these other places, you just obliterate the river and it's very obvious. Um, so this is a little different that way. But, um, you know, in the late 19th century, it can be difficult to appreciate how revolutionary electricity was seen, right? Especially when, and that's what okay, helped give Niagara Falls this aura because it's connected to it seeing as if this is the greatest natural wonder, now it can be turned to creating what is seen by some as the greatest invention or the greatest new thing that comes. And so, I mean, the, the forward conveys that very effectively of just across political stripes, you know, um, or different ideologies, electricity, whether it's communism, <laughs> capitalism, all these things uh, see electricity as the way forward. And even today, you know, we're all kind of, there's many of us campaigning to get rid of fossil fuels. No one's talking about getting rid of electricity. I don't think I've ever seen see anyone get rid of electricity. I can imagine my life without fossil fuels. I, I, don't ima I can't imagine my life without electricity in many ways, right? Because what we're doing right now is being driven by electricity. And yes, of course, fossil fuels have often gone towards that electricity with coal and everything. But um, So it, it's seen as not just, uh, electricity is not just this new energy source, a continuation. It's, a, it's, a, it's seen as this rupture of it'll change society. And that's where you get all these schemes, um, which I don't talk so much about in the book because other authors like William Irwin and Patrick McGreevy have done a good job of that, all these utopian visions that then became connected to the electricity uh, of Niagara Falls. And so even if these big schemes don't happen, um, you know, some of the smaller ones do. Love Canal, as I argue in the book, it needs to be seen as not the antithesis of Niagara Falls, but as the almost inevitable result of Niagara Falls, right? That's Love Canal comes about because of a canal built not only to connect Hydro Falls power, but then all the chemicals dumped don't happen if you don't have um, all the uh, electricity of Niagara Falls. That, that's what, you know, starts building up pretty quickly once electric, hydroelectric power is proven. You've got uh, the Aluminum Company of America moves all of its operations there. So the majority of the world's aluminum is being produced there at a point in the early 20th century. The majority of U.S electrical chemicals and a lot of new products that never been invented before happen there. I mean, alternating current um, is sort of not invented there, but again, it's sort of proven. So it is utopian in, in a certain sense. And so that, that's what becomes, you know, the, this tension again of beauty versus power. It's what, what is Niagara Falls for, right? And what they try to do is have their cake and eat it too. Instead of just giving it over completely to, that it's there to power industry. They want to have as much of that as possible while still maintaining that, you know, the flowing facade of, of a waterfall to keep tourism. So that's how 
um, they're trying to have it all, I guess, I guess at one time. I mean, and to be fair, in some ways, they have, they have been successful at doing it mm -hmm. in, in many respects. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think you bring up a good point, you know, with the um, intense debates right now over the future of energy production. A lot of people might assume that um, hydropower is completely clean and, and also conflict-free, right? Because it seems like this free energy provided to us by water and gravity but but you point out you know that, that and there's also been a lot of good work done i think on quebec hydro that points out that you know these 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 there's a lot of conflict and a lot of problems with hydro too you know um i don't know if you want to speak to that at all sure yeah i mean it, it's complicated because it you know you don't burn you're not putting carbon dioxide into the air with hydroelectricity so it's not um it doesn't really contribute to climate change in that way. Although there have been a lot of a lot of evidence lately that the reservoirs from hydroelectric projects, the big ones, emit methane, which is a much more potent greenhouse gas. I mean, so there's sort of a methane um, time bomb in a certain sense from decomposing plant material, but that has a limited shelf life. I think whatever's under there decomposes over time, and eventually will stop giving it off. And I think there's still some debate about how much is that contributing. Um, to it, but but I do have qualms about calling on Niagara Falls a green, or about hydroelectricity calling that green because, and you you touched on it. It's you know, there's a lot of hydro imperialism that goes into this. Usually, it's um, indigenous and marginalized groups, at least within the North American context. Partly, partially because they were the ones that would have used those waterways and had territory there already. But of course, it's also because they're seen as the second class citizens who you can move out of the way. So, I mean, with the St. Lawrence case, it was even more obvious where they actually flooded out territory of, of those peoples. But at Niagara Falls, the, the Tuscarora, which is one of the, the, the six nations of the Haudenosaunee, I can never say it, Haudenosaunee, um, they moved them out of the way for a reservoir that's built for the Robert Moses hydroelectric station, which is its sort of whole part of a chapter of the book is, is going into that. And then there's a whole fascinating side chapter of the unknown story or the unknown chapter of Robert Moses. Everyone associates him with um, right, New York City, but he actually played a pretty big role in Niagara Falls. And they bring him in because he's the one who's seen as effective at booting people out of the way. So he very consciously chooses um, Tuscarora territory because it's cheaper. It's got less land use value in his estimation. So we've got, you know, and then there's even at Niagara Falls, they don't, what's unique about it, and I touched on it earlier, and that they don't actually dam and obliterate the whole river as they do with most other large scale hydro electric projects. What they do is they divert the water and put it into um, artificial reservoirs, which are also reverse pump storage so that they can fill it up at nighttime when the electricity demands aren't as high and then sort of aqua storage batteries, <laughs> uh, essentially. So they have artificial reservoirs rather than turning the river itself into the reservoir in certain respects. So it doesn't have some of the impacts of flooding out an entire river basin, again, like you see with the Columbia, the St. Lawrence, um, the Jam rivers going into James Bay, a lot of these other big rivers. But it, but it does have at Niagara Falls other types of environmental impacts. If you're stealing the water, three quarters of the water that would have been in the river, and it's out of the river for four or five miles till it's put back in, that has a lot of impacts on water temperature speeds, what can live there. I mean, a sort of famous example is for those who've been at Niagara Falls, downstream there's a whirlpool. That reverses when the water levels <laughs> are low enough from diversions. And then of course the actual, you know, coffer damming off part of the river for the construction of course had enormous impacts and set back aquatic and fish species by decades uh, that were in there. So it doesn't, Niagara Falls doesn't have, I don't think as much damaging ecological consequences as other comparable um, hydroelectric generating stations of that size. Um, but to call hydroelectricity green, there's a lot of caveats and hesitations about how far you can go, I guess, in, in saying that, in my mind. Yeah, good. Um, so we talked a little bit about the problems associated with drawing water away to use for uh, the generation of electricity. But of course, you know, rivers are, are dynamic um, systems. And so there's going to be just natural erosion over time. I mean, and that's particularly true at, at waterfalls. They, they, they change, right? Um, and so maybe can you describe the conflicts over the natural erosion? I know there's some 
differences here when we're talking about Horseshoe Falls and the American Falls. So, you know, if you want to talk about them separately or uh, to give the audience a better sense. Right, yeah. So what you have is uh, the Horseshoe Falls is roughly 90% of the water um, and 10% of the water goes over um, the American Falls and the little Brid Bridal Vale Falls that are connected to it. Now, uh, how much water volume exactly has been contested over time, partly because in the 19th century, they didn't really have the technologies to accurately gauge a river that large. I'm also pretty convinced that it's, they purposely, whether it's on purpose or subliminally, sort of averaged down the flow of the river over time in order to make it look like there's taking less water from it. Um, and of course, the, the water volume does fluctuate with how much water is going into the Great Lakes system above it. So we're seeing record highs on almost all the Great Lakes um, right now. So you're seeing higher water levels on the Niagara River. But even that said, there's control works that I've mentioned, control dams and other natural features that can st still sort of limit how high the, uh, the river goes at, at one time. But all that to say, there's a lot more water going over the Horseshoe Falls. So it erodes much more quickly, but it also has a lot more um, water to actually chew up and disperse the, wa the water that falls or the rock that falls. So what you have is, and again, this, this is pretty con contested and it changes from year to year, but you're having several feet, the, the Horseshoe Falls moving back or receding by several feet per year. I mean, since glacial times, they fit, you know, Niagara Falls, you can see where it started at the Niagara Escarpment close to Lake Ontario. That's seven miles away. So if it's moved seven miles in how, however many thousands of years, that, that speaks to the power of how it's moving. Um, but even just within more contemporary times in the 19th century, it was several feet per year. Um, but the water then gets, the rock gets chewed up and dispersed. The American Falls doesn't move as quickly in terms of recession, but what does fall, because there's not a, of the rock, there's not as much water going over, so that tends to, that rock piles up at the base of it, it's called the talus. So that leads into the, the separate issue, which is one of the chapters of the book, which is uh, the campaign to, after they've remade the Horseshoe Falls in the 1950s and 1960s, they look at remaking um, the American Falls as well. Um, but I mean, and I can say more about that, but what's happened is with all these works that were remedial works, which is the catch-all word for all the different diversions and um, infrastructure, um, that's what the engineers called it collectively. It's a suite of uh, remedial works. It's unclear how successful it's actually been at reducing erosion. Um, I mean, other things they did, they, they literally staple parts of Niagara Falls, as in they put in retaining rods and screws to hold the face of it together to try to keep it from breaking off as quickly. What it looks like, looks like has happened since the new water regime that diverts most of the water is that sort of the feet of the of the horseshoe falls which is where people stand mainly when you go to see it right at the edge that's been staying still but the middle of the horseshoe falls has continued to erode um and it, it's hard to measure surprisingly no one's really measured it since that's happened there's no official uh measurement so there's just a lot of guesses um myself and a colleague used aerial images and GIS software to just try and measure in feet, you know, and it looks like it's moved. I, I think it's 75 feet at that peak of the Horseshoe Falls in the last 50 or 60 years. But a lot of that has just been in the last 10 years where you've had a few occasions of more rock crumbling off. So it almost erosion was slowed at the Horseshoe Falls somewhat. It certainly wasn't completely stopped. And it looks like it may be accelerating a bit if we go by what the average is for the last 10 years. So in, in some ways, it didn't totally stop the erosion anyway. Yeah, and, and again, this, this gets at this idea of, you know, what, what is the purpose of the falls? Is it this natural wonder? And, and if so, you know, why do we want to prevent erosion? And, and uh, you know, because that's what waterfalls do. Um, but, but there's tremendous effort put into kind of maintaining this nostalgic uh, landscape. Um, and, uh, you know, you can see that, you know, in, in many different settings in environmental history. And, and this book is a great example of, of that. And, and there's so many others, you know, the debates over the reduction of flow causing changes in the color of the water or, you know, um, different 
um, uh, uh, changes done that affect the way that the mist carries in the wind. And, and so, you know, what's the right way for the mist to, to fall or to, to, to be, you know, vaporized. And, uh, you know, th those are just, you know, the wonderful parts of the book in, in, in my opinion. Um, so, you know, something I think we're both really interested in is, um, what happens to these different landscapes in the winter? Um, and so, you know, I know that there was um, a, a lot of interest in the ice formation at the falls, and, and actually this was an important place where people did a, a lot of research into um, ice and, and uh, you know, winter ecologies. So if you want to talk about that a little bit. Sure, I'll talk about ice and, and just briefly before I do, just because I haven't addressed the, the mist and color that much, and I wanted to make sure I, I said a bit more. Yeah, you're right about this nostalgic view of what's, what is Niagara Falls supposed to look like. And so, I mean, part of the reason for freezing erosion in place is logistical. If you've built, invested a lot of money in, you know, a table rock house and places to view it and elevators, they had to move the elevators in the Second World War because erosion ate into where people would, would, would go to see that. Um, so there were those reasons. And then, yeah, they, um, in the 1930s, they started using this, they invented a device called the telecolorometer, which was this idea that Niagara Falls is supposed to look a certain hue of green. When the water volume is too low from diversions, it looks too white. And so what they would do is use this device, which looks kind of like a road surveying device, and try the waterfall at different volumes to see if it still had that correct shade or correct hue. And later, that was transferred onto models as being one of the ways to try to, you know, change the model to see if, it's, uh, if it still looked good and still looked accurate. And the same thing with mist. They were trying to control mist and believed they could, that, that if you shape the waterfall in a way, and again, this is something they tried to, to, to model, both color and mist were something they did realize there were limitations on on a scale model. I don't know whether you could really... Uh, whether mist on a scale model is going to behave <laughs> from falling water in the same way in the real world setting, it won't. So that's where you get into that intersection of, you know, personal view and intuition as an engineer versus just the, the, the technical aspects. But they did, yeah, think they could control mist, which they didn't, again, didn't really fully succeed in doing. And that's always about sanitizing it. You know, people, compl people were complained. They didn't want, want to get wet when they went to the waterfall. It should be packaged for easier uh, consumption. And in fact, mist has returned as a problem in the last few years. And some of the theories are that all the high towers that have been built around Niagara Falls create sort of a wind tunnel effect of some type and are creating that. Um, but, but that seasonality speaks to the winter question as well, because this is, of course, Niagara Falls is, you know, at the one of the more northern extremes of the United States and at a latitude where you're going to get. Um, Wintertime, of course, you're going to get some pretty heavy ice formation depending on the year. And so you had uh, a cultural history of Niagara Falls would often freeze over. Now, it didn't fully freeze over. Water was still falling behind, but it looked like it was frozen over. So the actual waterfall would be, would be covered in ice. Um, so, but then that caused problems. People from both the Ontario and New York sides would have festivals in the winter, but sometimes, uh, you know, the ice would break up too early and people actually died in 1912 from, they were out on the ice having sanctioned festivities and they broke and they floated away and, um, and, and perished, unfortunately. Um, so after that, those were outlawed, but they also had numerous other examples where, um, because you get such this, uh, this big ice buildup um, called the, which they called the ice bridge, um, because it's actually served as a bridge, you could walk across the river, but it would break up and on several occasions it wrecked bridges, like tore them off of their footings, which is also significant because some of these were the large, you know, the most advanced bridges of their type at the time, um, especially in the 19th century. Um, but it happened in the late 30s again as well. Also, there's power stations, hydropower stations, some of them, um, at least up until um, they're replaced by, by the bigger ones after World War II that are in the gorge, so they get wrecked or have to stop operating when you get this gigantic ice buildup. Other way ice ca causes a problem is that the water intakes uh, for hydroelectric facilities above the falls. So I mentioned earlier, I think that when they build the control dams and the different diversion works, part of the way they design them, and models come into this too, is to try to alter water speeds and change how ice actually forms so that it won't become the type of ice that will prevent uh, 
hydropower intakes from continuing to go um, in the wintertime. You don't have to worry about navigation near the waterfall, of course, because <laughs> people aren't taking boats so, um, uh, through there. So the, but to try to figure that out, and here I'm talking about the very early 20th century or even late 19th century, they bring in scientists and a lot of experts to try to figure out even the basic elements of what's the difference between anchor ice and frazzle ice. How does frazzle ice or some sort of that slushy frazzle ice form? Because that can be very problematic um, for you know, power intakes. So a lot of the earliest science of what, how does ice behave? How do we characterize it? Was done um, in in the Niagara and the St. Lawrence rivers for for these purposes, and it was for you know the self-interested purposes of how do we keep our power stations uh, running in winter time. So lots of different experiments for I mean, you know. But, uh, pumping in uh, air, so air bubblers, pumping in steam or heated water, how you shape um, grills and intakes, can that change how ice forms or um, submerged dams and weirs to change water speeds and temperatures. So a lot of the, what was at the time, the cutting edge science on figuring out how can we, what is ice, how does it behave, and then how can we control it? So a lot of that was technically done um, as part of the early Niagara power stations. And then even today, we still don't actually, in some ways, don't know a whole lot about ice. It's one of these messy things. And it is sort of the one form of H2O that the engineers throughout the 20th century were a little more apprehensive about their ability to actually control. They believed they could you know, control water and even mist, but ice, you know, another bad pun, was slipperier in terms of trying to get their... their um, the, their knowledge around that. So, I mean, the, there's a lot of interesting discussions and experiments. And then, you know, so that's still ongoing in the 50s and 60s when they build the big new power stations and the hydropower intakes. And they're experimenting with, you know, icebreakers um, or, again, new techniques for how to control ice or even figuring out what it is, how it forms. One of the ultimate solutions has been, and again, this is one of the solutions they discovered is at Buffalo where Lake Erie flows into the Niagara River, they, every fall they put in what's called an ice weir, which essentially create, creates, uh, uh, starts ice forming at it, and then all the ice piles up behind it and doesn't go down the Niagara River. So you still get some, of course. I mean, it's been two or three years ago, it was sort of a media sensation at Christmas time or the, at the holidays, and Niagara Falls had frozen over, and, and I think because of social media, it sort of went viral for... Um, a few days that Niagara Falls was you know, this gallant buildup of, of icy wonderfulness. And it's probably because they sort of had one of those, as you've, I'm sure, experienced, where the types of freezing rain where it's like everything becomes the trees and everything and all the rails become covered in a, a see-through layer of, of, of clear ice. That also contributes, I think, to, to that effect. Great. Uh, yeah, so... Uh... Before we move on to you know, diplomacy, which is a big part of this book as well, you know, I, I just got done um, teaching at Cornell and, you know, Ithaca as a town, one of its kind of featured attraction is the gorges uh, formed by flowing water and, and waterfalls. And, and, you know, you can buy t-shirts that say Ithaca is gorges, <laughs> yeah. you know, gorgeous. Um, and so I, this was a wonderful part of living in Ithaca for me because I could hike these trails actually every day going to work. I could hike up one of these gorges. Um, but I was torn, of course, because you could also see the remnants of the infrastructure that, that was once used to study by the university to study water flow and also for power generation. Um, so, you know, the, for me personally, uh, I was torn in what to think about these, these, uh, rivers and these waterfalls. So do you have kind of your own thoughts or opinions on this question of what's more important, kind of the natural beauty of waterfalls versus their potential for power generation? Yeah, it's a really great question. And uh, tension that I'm torn on and you know I try to get at that in the conclusion a little bit and I always am torn because there's part of me that thinks you know they have the more the more I don't know if the more realistic part of me thinks they've you know the, from a more utilitarian perspective they've done a pretty good job of balancing everything in Niagara Falls we get a lot of power and I mean it's it's also I mean in the early 20th century it was something like 
the majority of the electricity produced in the United States was coming from the different power stations of the U.S. and Canada. So this was the major power source of electricity for the United States in some ways. And I've mentioned all the, you know, new great products that it, it leads to creating. So from a utilitarian perspective, it's, I said, you know, you have your cake and eat it too. You still get the beauty. If people don't know they're missing something and, and they still are moved by the natural splendor of Niagara Falls and we still get all that power from it, that would on the one hand suggest it's been valuable. On the other hand, I think it's intentional deception. And I mean, I tried to get at that. So that part doesn't settle well with me. The, you know, the part, the more idealistic part of me thinks, you know, is, believes in leaving nature alone. <laughs> um, and then when you throw in that this is meant to deceive people, and I think it has lessened the experience, especially when now, you know, it's been turned into a carnival all around Niagara Falls. So I, I don't think you get the nature experience that you would have at one point, kind of getting back to what was it like 200 years ago. I don't think it's that same transcendental experience um, for a lot of people. Um, but then again, like I said, it's since there's it's meant to fool people, so I, I think that doesn't sit well with me in, in lots of ways. Um, so I mean, my hemming and hawing might indicate I'm still I am torn on what to think about it, especially once you factor in is is hydroelectricity green or not. Um, but I mean, one of the other, I think, negative environmental impacts it had, it still has, is, is it sort of gives license to remake all other environments. If you can control Niagara Falls, that's sort of saying, well, then it's okay to manipulate any part of nature that you want. If we don't, won't even protect our icons, then it sort of makes by comparison everything else is okay to to so it kind of has that cumulative effect of if it makes it acceptable to manipulate nature in such ways then it's hard to measure this because it's an indirect effect but does this just lead to you know a, a mindset of consumption and only using nature for um industrial purposes and i think it i think it does i mean i don't see anyone saying maybe directly oh since we did that to niagara falls that means we can do this to nature and do that to nature but but i think it does create along with other things that, that do that that sort of fosters that mindset i guess of controlling nature which i think is a very dangerous <laughs> mindset that illusion that we can in the long term control nature with no repercussions yeah so you know these these um people manipulating the river have maybe achieved in deception until your book uh, is more widely read or until people hear this interview and now you've exposed the de deception. So um, yeah, uh, hopefully we can get more people to read this book. Um, I, should, I should add, I'm not the, I'm not the first to yeah. say that this has happened. Ginger Strand wrote a very good book and um, uh, you know, um, uh, Anne Winston Spurn talks about in her chapter in the Cronin edited book. I think I do a lot of things different than um, than those books, but um, and take a lot of things further or go different directions. So I don't want to claim that I've uncovered something no one else has ever known, um, but it's not widely known, mm -hmm. uh, I don't think. Anyway, sorry to interrupt. No, that, that's fine. Um, so, you know, you also, an important part of this book and, and your other work is uh, the diplomatic element. And in some ways you show or you argue that water is, is kind of doing diplomacy and kind of leading some of this diplomacy. So maybe you can start off talking about the most important differences between how uh, the USA and Canada kind of valued the falls, if, if there are kind of stark differences. Yeah, I think there are a few important ones. One is that, I mean, the Canadian heartland is on the the lower Great Lakes, right? It's sort of the upstate New York in that area, sort of, that's the sort of the backwoods of the United States, the back door, to use Patrick McGreevy's term, but the front door for Canada. You've got the majority of the Canadian population living along the Niagara, Lake Ontario, St. Lawrence Corridor. That's the industrial financial heartland. It's also, and it's where all the Canada, Canada's first city, major cities from the Euro um, perspective developed and most of its early, you know, its early capitals and all those sorts of things. So it's sort of the, it's Canada's version of, you know, the, the New England and the East Coast for the United States and Virginia and those areas. So it has a lot more symbolic significance for Canadians, I think. They look at the great 
uh, so the Great Lakes, Niagara Falls, the St. Lawrence figure into Canadian identity in a much more fundamental way, I would argue, than the American. Now, certainly New York State, Michigan have some pretty key identities tied up in those water bodies. But for the national, national narratives, the Great Lakes are pretty central um, and the St. Lawrence and Niagara Falls. And then in a more measurable way, too, I mean, this was Niagara Falls was the major revolutionary power source for Ontario. And of course, it's close to Toronto, and so a lot of the power was sent there. And that leads into the creation of Ontario Hydro, which you could argue, so you can tie Niagara Falls to Canada, becoming a more government interventionist socialist type of state, even, in a way. That might be taking it too far, but there's some important path dependencies that, that come out of that. So there's a, and there's something called the, you know, the Laurentian thesis, the idea that it's the St. Lawrence that develops Canada and retains that link back to to Britain. So I think those types of ide ideological symbolic significances have a lot, make developing those water bodies of a different type of importance for Canada and Ontario, for sure. And that gets put into the type of diplomacy that you see on whether what Canada is willing to share and wants to share versus the reality of needing to share with a much more powerful country. Then again, it also speaks to some would argue, you know, that Canada and U.S. are able to cooperate like most other countries can't on, on something like this, that they're cooperatively remaking these sorts of things is, is impressive in some ways. It also became, at the time Niagara Falls electricity starts becoming uh, more available, Canada doesn't have a lot of its own supplies of domestic coal, so it was relying on the U.S. quite a bit. So part of the rhetoric was that this white coal from Niagara allows Canada to escape energy reliance on the United States. So it achieves sort of that nationalist um, importance as well, sort of identical things like hydraulic nationalism or hydro-nationalism. And uh, hydroelectricity re retains its importance in Canada's energy portfolio to today, uh, um, much more than U.S. does. Hydroelectricity is a pretty small percentage of American electricity. But I mean, we're talking by World War II, I think 90-some percent of Canadian electricity was still hydroelectricity. Not all from Niagara Falls, of course, but that's where the, you know, the, the biggest chunk of it is, is coming from. So it remained, Niagara Falls and what was done with it remained proportionally more important to Canada industry and energy. At the same time, because of that, and maybe somewhat in conflict, conflict with the symbolism I'm talking about, the U.S. seemed pretty consistently more concerned with that aesthetic, protect the scenic aspect of Niagara Falls than did Canada. And again, this maybe speaks to because this was one of Canada's major energy and economic drivers. It needs that more than it needs the tourism in a certain sense. So you, you certainly see there, there's more, you know, whether it's Franklin Roosevelt or... Um, you know, his predecessor Roosevelt earlier in the century, do talk more about protecting Niagara Falls. There's uh, pressure, public pressure groups that are formed to protect Niagara Falls that don't really have an analog in Canada. So the U.S. does sort of display more of this um, protection of it. And that maybe ties to you know, going back to the 19th century when Niagara Falls is seen as a symbol of the United States more so. So it's a symbol of its, you know, of its potential, the unlimited power of Niagara Falls in the 19th century mirrors the unlimited potential and power of uh, the, you know, the growing American Republic at the same time. So that ties in. That said, it's, I would argue, after the Horseshoe Falls are remade, it's, I, I think Niagara Falls has become seen as more of, it's more Canadian. A little more now maybe than American. It's certainly at least equal, whereas it used to be more American. You'd go to the United States to get to Niagara Falls. Now it's a little more you go to Toronto, maybe for international tourists at least to, to see it. So um, I think it's in the, since 1950s, I think it's become retain, you know, doubled down a little more on its importance as a symbol of Canada. It certainly hasn't gone away as a symbol of the United States. But again, this is, U.S. water narratives I find tend to stress scarcity in the West and they have for a long time now instead of, I mean, 90-some percent of U.S. surface groundwater is in the Great Lakes St. Lawrence Basin. Like almost all of it <laughs> by percentage but it doesn't get talked about. It's the West and the Columbia or the, you know, the Colorado and the lack of water there. Where in Canada it's a little more narratives of water abundance in, in the Great Lakes too. So those are some of the different sort of coalescing factors I think that then these ideas get, you know, 
put into and inform the actual diplomacy and the international relations of how do you bargain over this? And when you get to that, there's, a, there's those differences, but there's still a certain shared assumption of the best use of this waterfall is for us to manipulate it and get power from it. So those differences aside, there maybe that commonality is every bit as important. Good. So maybe briefly, uh, you know, you can talk about the different, um, you know, uh, diplomatic negotiations um, that that are vital for understanding Niagara Falls. Right. Um, so you have, I mean, you have the International Joint Commission, which was created by the Boundary Waters Treaty in 1909, which is a unique international governance body created by the U.S. and Canada to share and exploit, mutually exploit, I guess you could say, to their, their border waters. Nowadays, it's more used for protecting. Back then, it was more about how do we not fight over this and both develop uh, these waters as, as we'd like them. So that, that original treaty has some stipula had some stipulations on how much cubic feet per second of water the U.S. could divert and how much Canada could divert. So that stays in place. Um, for a few decades, they, they bargained back and forth. In 1929, there's um, a Niagara Accord is signed. This is they want to up the water level so they can divert because now factories can take more, turbines are, are bigger. Um, that's one of those agreements that uh, agreement is made. It doesn't get through the U.S. Senate. It was believed it gave too much, too much to private power interests, which it did. To to be fair, it was going to give U.S. share over to private power producers. Because um, on the Canadian side, Ontario Hydro has already been developed by that point, and so it's public, mostly public hydroelectricity. New York gets, in the 1930s, it gets its own comparable example with the power authority of the state of New York, now known as New York Power Authority. So there's a 1929 agreement that can't get through. Those same Niagara provisions are mostly the same, are wrapped into a St. Lawrence Seaway agreement in 1932. Same story, doesn't get through the U.S. Senate. They keep going back and forth and negotiating. Another agreement in 41, again, about the Seaway and Niagara Falls and some other Great Lakes stuff. But then Pearl Harbor happens, that gets deferred till the end of the war. So with the, after the war, they decide to separate um, those Niagara negotiations out from the St. Lawrence Seaway because it looks like Canada at this point is going to go ahead alone with its own Seaway, not in conjunction with the U.S. So they sign it. That's where they get their own separate agreement, which is a treaty in 1950, the Niagara River Diversion Treaty, which I think I earlier called through the, the hinge point of, I mean, what they had been doing essentially during the war is saying, hey, if we both agree to not follow our treaty and just divert as much water as we want, who's going to stop us? I want to stop you if you don't stop me. That's oversimplifying. But they'd already been taking more water than was legally allowed anyway. Um, but they wanted to get that enshrined Partly because if you want to build a new factory or a new power station and you want to get, you know, your financing, you need to prove that you're going to, to the bank, that you're going to have a certain amount of water. So you needed a diplomatic agreement. So a lot of that's driven by, again, you know, the capitalist interests of we want to develop all these, this industry. So we need, there needs to be an agreement guaranteeing that we have a certain allotment of water to use. Great. So, you know, Dan, we've taken up a lot of your time already. Um, so, you know, we'd love to hear before we go what you're working on now or, or what the next uh, project's going to be. Well, my, the next book project is a fairly natural, again, outflow, bad pun of, of my other work. I mean, if my first book was about the St. Lawrence. This one was about Niagara. Now I'm doing the lake in between. So, um, with, with Colin Duncan, we've been working, I've been working on a book on the transnational environmental history of Lake Ontario. So we're, um, We've got close to a first draft done, um, but you know these things still take <laughs> the, the vagaries of publishing can still take a long time. So I'm working on that, and then I've also I taught a class a long time ago when I was a postdoc on the history of Canada-U.S. environmental and energy relations. And so, based on that class, I've been turning that into sort of a survey style, sort of shorter than my other monograph. Monographs, but a, a book on the uh, survey history of Canada-U.S. environmental and energy relations. So that too, I've got sort of, I'm at, I think, got almost a whole complete first draft done of that. So, but it'll still be a few more years. So I'm mainly working on those two projects for now. 
Well, Dan, those, those sound like great projects. I can't wait to uh, read those when you're done. And I want to thank you for being on the show today. Again, the, the book uh, we've been talking about is Fixing Niagara Falls, Environment, Energy, and Engineers at the World's Most Famous Waterfall uh, by our guest, Daniel McFarlane. Uh, again, I really enjoyed it. And take care, Dan. Thanks so much for having me. Take care.